Suddenly, I knew who the firebug was. I had to tell Detective Donovan. I risked disapprobation by leaving meeting early. Censure was worth it. I rose and made my way to the door, wincing as I broke the silence by catching my boot toe on the edge of a bench and nearly tripping. As I passed the corner of the building, I bumped into Stephen Farley. I looked at him with alarm. What is the... I began. He spun, running to the back of the meeting house. I picked up my skirts and followed at a trot. He disappeared. When I turned the corner, I halted. Fire flared up from a pile of burning leaves. It licked at the back wall of the building. Stephen stood watching it with an intense stare, rubbing his hands. I rushed to the pile. I stamped at it, but it had already begun to eat at the wood above. Fire! Get out! I screamed. Fire! Bring buckets! I heard a shriek from within. Coughing from the smoke, I threw my cloak onto the burning leaves, but the fire was too large to smother. I beat at the burning wall with my hands. I wouldn't let my beloved meeting house fall victim to Stephen's warped mind. The, 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 Quaker Podcast. Story, spirit, sound. I'm Georgia Sparling. And I'm John Watts. And our guest today is a woman of mystery. Oh, do tell. Oh, I will. She goes by two names, Edith Maxwell and Maddie Day. Oh, so a spy? No. Uh, Witness protection? Also no. (laughs) Okay. Okay, I give up. (laughs) A Quaker mystery writer with a pen name. (laughs) Oh, very, very fun. Cool. Can't believe you didn't guess that. <laughs> so her real name is Edith Maxwell. Um, but first, tell me what your relationship is to mysteries. Oh, I I wouldn't say I have much of one. I've enjoyed a mystery or two, but I'm I'm more of a sci-fi reader, I think. What what about you? Oh, I love a good mystery. I'm reading a couple right now. It's really the buildup that I love and uncovering the clues, even more than the ending. You know, it's about the journey for me. Awesome. Well, uh, it sounds like you're the right person for the for the job then. Tell me more about Edith or Maddie's books. Well, you just heard an excerpt from one of her recent books. It's a collection of short stories called A Questionable Death. And Edith writes very non-gory mysteries, a.k.a. cozy mysteries, which I'll explain that term later in the episode. But she's a prolific author, a best-selling, award-winning author, actually. And she writes Quakerism into her books in more ways than one. Oh, that that sounds really intriguing. Yes, as with any good mystery. (laughs) So let's get started. Hi, I'm Georgia. Oh, hi, Georgia. Hi. My name is Edith Maxwell, and I'm a over 30-year member of Amesbury Friends Meeting in the northeast corner of Massachusetts. Um, I am a full-time uh, mystery fiction author when I'm not sitting in meeting for worship. I meet Edith at the Amesbury Meeting House, which is an hour or so north of Boston. She's on the short side, very friendly, with a delightfully spunky streak of blue in her short gray hair. Edith lives close to the meeting house and has arrived a few minutes before me. Like many a New England meeting, this one is historic, with wide, whitewashed plank floors and a modest worship area. 
it's the perfect place to meet since it features prominently in Edith's Quaker Midwife Mystery Series. It's the most beautiful, simple, light-filled place of worship. And I mean that directly. I mean, I, I feel that the walls are imbued with spirit from centuries of, of friends sitting in unprogrammed worship there. Edith was born and raised in California. She says she was nominally Presbyterian growing up. It was while she was earning a Ph.D. in linguistics that she visited her first Quaker meeting. I mean, I heard about Quakers in the anti-war in the Vietnam era. Personally, it wasn't until I went with a boyfriend when I was in graduate school in Bloomington, Indiana, and I went to the meeting there, which is an unprogrammed meeting. And at the time, in the early 1980s, it was just thriving, lots of kids, lots of families. And I thought, oh, I can, I can relate to this. Like, I really, really liked it. It wasn't until years later, after getting married, having two kids, becoming a stay-at-home mom, and moving to a town north of Boston, that she became a regular part of a meeting. And I was just seized with this need to find a Quaker meeting near me. This was in 1989, and there was no internet, and we didn't even have a phone book yet at home. So I went down to the local market in West Newbury, and I said, can I borrow your phone book? And the Quaker meeting didn't even have a phone number at the time, but I think I saw a notice in the newspaper, the local newspaper, and I was there the next week. But let's back up. When Edith started attending Amesbury meeting, she wasn't a mystery writer yet, but she was a writer. I wrote a lot of fiction as a child, like almost obsessively. I was just writing stories all the time from, from when I could write, I don't know, first grade or something. There was a competition a contest in the Pasadena Star News, and um, there was a children's fiction contest, and I won for The Viking Girl. It was a little short story, and they paid me $2, and they printed my story, and so that was my first paid fiction. And then I, I uh, kind of left that left fiction behind and did journalism and academic writing and different kinds of writing. When my youngest son, John, went off to kindergarten, and I had every morning to myself that I started writing a murder mystery. Edith's husband at the time suggested it. He said, well, you like reading mysteries so much, why don't you write one? And, you know, hilariously, I think he thought we would just make a lot of money at this real quick. <laughs> I am making money now, but it took a long, long time. Edith ran a small organic farm, and she started writing in the off-season. Just thought, well, I love reading mysteries with female protagonists and... I can write one. <laughs> so I started writing one and I joined a, a, a writing critique group. But that was, it took me some decades to get back to writing. Farming season kicked up again and the book went into a metaphorical drawer. I'm not a plotter, so I hadn't, I didn't know how it was going to end because that's how I write. I follow my characters around, I write down what they do, and I had no idea how it was going to end and I didn't have enough um, skills, writing skills to understand how to figure out how it should end. Uh, so I kind of put it down and I farmed. And then the next year I got back into the paid workforce and I retrained as a technical writer. And I couldn't figure out how to find enough time being working full time, raising two elementary school children. And at the time, my marriage was not going that well. And so I had a 
cantankerous husband to deal with. And I just couldn't figure out how to also carry an entire plot of a book and its characters and all that in my head. So I saved that file. And it wasn't until, oh, nearly 15 or so years later that, um, that I got back to it. And it ended up being my second published novel, the, A Time to Live, A Time to Die, T-I-N-E, um, which was the first of my local foods mysteries, which are set on an organic farm. So I did get back to it. Like never, you never throw away anything you've written. You just save it and see how you can repurpose it. Edith was an avid mystery reader. She loved authors like Sue Grafton and Sarah Paretsky. And unlike male authors she read, these female writers didn't describe women's bodies in intimate and perhaps unnecessary detail. You know, I've been reading crime fiction by men and all my life, sort of, but um, they tend to mention women's boobs and legs a lot. And the women who write don't do that. You know, I don't need to hear about that. I mean, I, why? <laughs> it's just, it just seemed gratuitous to me. And so that's why I was reading those women. And so, of course, that's how I write too. So Edith began writing Cozy Mysteries. If you don't know, Cozy Mysteries are a thing, a big thing in the book world. Millions of copies sell every year. And this mystery subgenre follows a certain set of rules. One. The protagonist is almost always a woman in a small town or village. The female sleuth who's a real person who's not, it isn't her job to solve the crime. She's a, she's a caterer or she's a, the wife of a minister or she has a bike shop. Two, at least one person is murdered, but there's no gore on the page. Little to no foul language and no explicit sex scenes. You might read, well, he let out a a list of swear words that would have made a, a sailor blush or, you know, she cursed. But you don't read the actual words. And there's romance, but they close the bedroom door before it gets too exciting. Three, a satisfying ending. And the protagonist usually gets in some, you know, some uh, in peril toward the end, but she saves herself, right? She doesn't need anybody else to rescue her. And... Kind of the most important thing is that justice is restored to the community in the end. And you don't feel worse about the world when you finish that book. And seriously, especially in the last few years um, with pandemic, with lockdown, with all of it, and certain political things that are happening, like the world out there is scary and messy enough. It was a huge respite to me to write these kinds of books during the pandemic. Because it's the only thing I could control. There is another characteristic of many cozy mysteries, one that I love, the punny titles. Edith has written more than 30 books, many of them award winners and bestsellers, and she has plenty of wordplay in her titles. There's Four Leaf Cleaver, Murder Uncorked, that one takes place in California wine country, Biscuits and Slashed Browns, and Mulch Ado About Murder. Anyway, you get the idea. So when Edith did get back to creative writing, she stuck to her favorite genre and a topic close to her heart. My first published book came out in uh, September 2012, and it was called Speaking of Murder. And it featured a contemporary Quaker linguistics professor in a coastal Massachusetts town, a fictional town. 
and uh, there's a she's a professor and there's a murder on campus of one of her students and she gets drawn into solving it that book had a sequel murder on the bluffs and since then she's gone on to write under her own name as well as a pseudonym maddie day and she has a series of series There's the local foods mysteries set around an organic farm, the country store mysteries set in Southlick, Indiana, the C.C. Barton mysteries about a wine bar manager in a fictional California wine country town, the Cozy Capers book group mysteries set on Cape Cod, and a historical series featuring a spunky Quaker midwife. After the break, we meet that crime-solving Quaker and find out how writing connects with Edith's Quaker faith. This is Cassie. Hey, Cassie. It's John Watts. How are you? Hi. Hi. Could you give us a quick introduction and tell us a little bit about your spiritual background? Yeah. Uh, my name is Cassie. I use she, they pronouns. I, uh, I grew up in the evangelical Christian family in small town Texas. Unfortunately, with a lot of that mainstream religion comes in conditional love, as I call it. I had always been since since college kind of the trying to find a spiritual place where I could be 100% me. I didn't know that there was Quakers still, <laughs> you know, growing up in small town Texas. Quakers are on the oat, oatmeal box and that's it. And I was like, wait a second, there's actually stuff here. There's actually stuff in Dallas, there's stuff in Fort Worth, like there's actually friends that meet. Before I went, I was like, hey, I'm I'm queer. Just, you know, can I be in your can I be in your space? Was pretty much what my initial email was, was like, can I be a queer queer Quaker? Is this a thing? Like, can I do this? And um, you know, without missing a beat, they're like, Of course, yeah, sure. You know, we don't have any liturgy or a pastor or like come as you are hundred percent. And so already feeling welcome in that space and then um being able to sit there um and actually feel something there's a power when you're sitting with people that are all there seeking they're you know seeking something beyond them and inviting something beyond them in that space was very very powerful so that's where the tears came from was for the first time um i actually could feel all the presence of the Holy Spirit among among that Quaker community. It was incredible. Because I'm still, you know, relatively new to attending uh, a meeting, said it's been a little over a year now, um, I'm still in the honeymoon phase, as I like to call it. So I'm still very excited and I want to learn. And, and so, you know, uh, because I have a commute, I have quite a commute right now. Um, I have a lot of time on my hands. And so I'll listen to history podcasts, one of these other things. I mean, when I found the, the Quaker podcast, it was very much of, I still want to learn more. So I, it was more just me looking, me seeking, me trying to find more ways that I could learn, not just about the history of Quakerism, um, but also seeing how people in 2023, um, you know, how that's alive and, and powerful in today's world. So 
Thank you so much for sharing your story with us, Cassie. We are working hard to make sure that when folks like Cassie are seeking ways to learn more about the Quaker faith, there's something spiritually rich out there for them to find. And we couldn't do it without your help. The Quaker Podcast is listener-supported. So if you're listening right now, whether you're in your honeymoon phase or even maybe a little past it, we are asking for your help. Help us to continue producing this show and you'll be helping the future of friends. Go to thequaker.org to find out how. That's T-H-E-E quaker.org. Thanks so much. I heard the snick of the key turning in the lock behind me as I made my way to the bedroom in the rear of the flat. I craned my head back. Why does he lock the door? We won't be long, I'm sure. He took a long stride toward me. My answer was his suddenly glowering expression and his hands on my shoulders, pushing me down the hall ahead of him. What is he doing? Don't push me, I cried as I extended my arms before me to avoid crashing into the closed bedroom door. A muffled sound came from behind it. Open the door, he growled. Something cold the size of a thumb pressed into my back. It echoed the cold now spreading through me. This was no visit to sort baby clothes. Welcome back. You just heard an excerpt from the first book in Edith Maxwell's Quaker Midwife series, Delivering the Truth. Hopefully it has piqued your interest. Set in Amesbury, Massachusetts in the 19th century, the books focus on Rose Carroll, a curious young woman who uses her career as a midwife to solve murders. Those are sort of the books closest to my heart because I live here and actually Rose lives in my house. In the series, Rose lives with family in a house that's modeled after Edith's own home in Amesbury. The first book, Delivering the Truth, was inspired by the Great Fire of 1888. In the book, Rose becomes an amateur sleuth after a mysterious and catastrophic factory fire leaves several people dead. Along the way, she consults with John Greenleaf Whittier, who was a real Quaker poet and abolitionist who was also actually on the building committee for the Amesbury Meeting House. Throughout the seven books in the Quaker Midwife series, Rose becomes an increasingly adept sleuth even as she introduces Edith's readers to Quakerism. She's an outsider to town which is good for an amateur sleuth because she can go around and ask questions. She doesn't know everything. She didn't grow up here. Quakers have always been outsiders, right? Plain dress, kind of weird speech. That makes her an outsider. And she has her own business and she goes places the police can't go, right? They do not go into women's bedrooms and ask them questions, especially when they're in labor or, or nursing their, their babies. Rose is a faithful Quaker who tries to live by the principles of friends. For example, whether a patient is a married wealthy woman or an unmarried mother-to-be, she treats them all with integrity. Rose also wears mostly plain colors. She uses the when talking to people and addresses everyone by their first name instead of using honorifics. I wanted to share one paragraph from Delivering the Truth that I thought was really amusing and also very telling of Rose's character. I won't give anything away, but in this scene, Rose is talking with Detective Kevin Donovan after a murder weapon has been found, and they're having a bit of a standoff. Kevin, regarding me, sat in silence as well. I'd read of this tactic in a serial novel. 
the silent treatment was usually effective to prod guilty parties to talk. But I was a Quaker. I'd had a lifetime of sitting in silence. I have had so many people say I've learned so much about Quakerism from you, about, about being a Quaker from your books, which is heartening. Like People really have, have appreciated that. I, I, yeah, I think there's just so many people who know nothing about what those values are that we, we hold dear, of, of nonviolence, of integrity, of equality. And it turns out that Rose's faith and her profession make her a great sleuth. If you ran across a dead body out in your sidewalk, you'd go, oh, my God. And you'd back away and throw up and call 911. You know, you don't go, oh, I wonder, were they poisoned? Were they stabbed? Like, you don't get involved. <laughs> um, but, but Rose gets involved. And she's just, she's naturally inquisitive. Um, she has a, that sort of really valuable, quiet personality of a midwife, um, which you sort of need to have if you hang around laboring women, you know, they're going through a lot. You need to be a strong, quiet presence. And being a Quaker helps that too. And so she has a really, really strong morals, really strong integrity. Um, but she does not hold back from a asking difficult questions. How do you feel like writing connects to your Quakerism? I mean, in part, what I do is my job. And sometimes it's just hard work and I show up every morning at seven at my laptop here. But there are times that I, I don't quite want to say it's worshipful, but there are times when I feel like I am, my characters are speaking to me and I'm just typing what, they, what they're telling me. Like it's, it's, it's otherworldly, it's spiritual almost. To when that happens, and it doesn't always happen, but that's sort of the magic and the, if I sit with it, if I'm quiet, there's analogs, maybe that's a better, it's sort of an analog to unprogrammed worship and being a Quaker in that if I'm quiet and I discern, I let myself have this, be open to discerning what direction it goes, then then my characters will lead me along. Um but if I'm overplanned and over busy and um, thinking about it too much, it doesn't work as well. Sometimes um, I feel like it's my words and my characters' actions are coming from outside of me. It's very nebulous. Like I don't want to say I'm channeling God when I'm writing exactly, but um, there's something kind of that's mm, connected to that. Um, and, and I don't understand that and I don't need to understand it. Similarly to, um, when I'm in meeting for worship, I don't, I don't need to understand it. I don't need to have a, an image or a name for, for that sense of spirit. And I don't need to know, I don't need to call it my muse or my, you know, any particular thing, but, but it's definitely a feeling that, this this creativity that i that i experience is is bigger than me and i and i've been able to tap into it and, which is absolutely delightful yeah like is there a similarity between vocal ministry or how it feels to give vocal ministry and how it's how you experience that magic of writing 
I guess that's I guess that's connected. Yeah. Right. Waiting, waiting for the right words, waiting for words to arise um, and not needing always even to say them if they do arise, but sitting with them. And um, Yeah. Yeah. I guess there's a connection there. Edith also features a diverse set of characters in her books, which is very informed by her experiences as a Quaker. I really try to include a kind of the spectrum of real people that are in real life in terms of where they come from and what they look like and what their jobs are and their ethnicities, their skin color, all of that, their preferences, their relationships, um, because that's what real life is like. And I, this is for a podcast, so you can't see me, but I'm an old white lady, you know, and how boring would that be if all I wrote about was old white ladies (laughs) or a young white lady? Like, that's just boring. Um, So I really do try to, I think all my books have at least one gay couple and there's just a variety. But I also love having that older character Edith's books have a dedicated following, plus she's been up for numerous awards. Five of the seven books were nominated for an Agatha Award for Best Historical Novel, and that's kind of like the Oscars in my field. And my fourth book, Charity's Burden, actually won the Agatha, so I have an Agatha teapot on my bookshelf behind me in my office here. That's the prize. That's the award. Edith is a prolific writer. She pens three to four books a year, plus short stories, plus regular posts on the Wicked Authors blog, and she says she's not likely to slow down much anytime soon. She finds ideas for new mysteries literally everywhere. Like I read just a little tweet from somebody a couple of months ago who said she irons her money. I said, you iron your money? And I'm thinking, okay, who irons their money? Why do they iron their money? What else are they obsessed about? And I wrote a note on my whiteboard that's up in front of my desk here. And um, I just wrote ironing money. And now I have a short story half written about a woman who irons her money and all the other things that happen. Um, so, so ideas like that can just be sparked by anything, anything. A news article, a person I see walking down the street, anything at all. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Edith, for sharing your stories with us. Edith wanted me to mention that she loves hearing from her readers and those who are interested in her books. You can find a list of all her titles, sign up for her newsletter, and reach out to her via edithmaxwell.com. And do check out quakerpodcast.com to tell us what you thought about this episode. You'll also find a transcript and discussion questions, plus a photo of Edith and I in the Amesbury Meeting House. This episode was produced by me, Georgia Sparling, and also John Watts. John also composed the music for this episode. Emily Earle was our voice actor. Mixing and mastering was provided by Studio D. The Quaker Podcast is part of The Quaker Project, a Quaker media organization with a focus on lifting up voices of spiritual courage and giving Quakers a platform in 21st century media. If you want to give to our work, we would so appreciate it please consider becoming a monthly supporter. You can learn more about how to join our giving team at thequaker.org. That's T-H-E-E quaker.org. Every contribution expands our capacity to tell Quaker stories in a fresh way. 
Before you go, I wanted to share another comment that we received on Apple Podcasts from user Frish1. And that's how I'm choosing to pronounce that. So it says, thoughtful podcast, useful to both friends and those wishing to learn more about friends. I enjoy the mix of topics from historical to current issues faced by friends meetings. I appreciate the way Georgia Sparling and John Watts present the challenges of following a leading. The episodes have a good length, the sound quality is good, and the music supports the listening experience. I hope to use the episode on hybrid meetings as we continue to explore the use of Zoom technology in my meeting. Thank you so much for leaving that comment, and we'd love to hear more about how y'all are using these episodes. Are you engaging with the discussion questions, sharing them with your meeting, with your social networks? Let us know. We'd also love your input on a future episode that I'm working on about Quakers and dating. So give us a call and tell us your experiences. Good, weird, romantic, perplexing, frustrating, absolutely wonderful. We want to hear it all. So yeah, that's Quakerism and dating. So here's our number where you can leave a message. 215-278-9411. That's 215-278-9411. And remember, if there's any links or phone numbers that we mentioned in an episode, that will also be in our episode notes at quakerpodcast.com. All right, we'll be back next week with a brand new episode.